This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Please have your attention. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, It's about, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes after I finish recording uh, my conversation with uh, Megan McArdle. I went to get some more coffee. Uh, and then get started again. I'm sitting in my hotel room. It's the the study at the University of Chicago, um, which is uh, it is the best possible hotel to stay in if you're doing an event at the Rubenstein Center at the University of Chicago because that's like a hundred feet from the entrance. It's a nice hotel otherwise, but it, if 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 you're going sightseeing in Chicago, I think they're probably better places to stay. But if you have business at the University of Chicago, I highly recommend it. And the staff is wonderful. Um, anyway, not that you cared about any of that. Uh, so I'm here for this conference thing. Um, I haven't listened to too much of it. I had to duck out while right before Barack Obama t- spoke last night. I'm recording this on Thursday. So this was Wednesday. Um, I had to duck out in part because I had to make an important phone call um, for reasons not to talk about here. Um, but also I just, you know, I, I honestly don't really like listening to presidents talk. Um, and I'm just not wowed by it. So I kind of left, which made some people look at me askance, askance. Um, and, uh, and I was on the, f- I watched the Ann Applebaum panel or I caught some of it yesterday before I left. Um, which got some attention and um, we can talk about that in a second, I guess. But uh, my panel was on disinformation, uh, politics as usual, or threat to democracy or something like that. Um, Oh no, here's the title. Politics as usual or an insidious attack on our democracy. And, um, you know, my short answer to that is basically both, you know, yes. Um, In the sense that, you know, sort of the Yogi Berra, if you came, you know, when you come to a fork in a road, take it kind of thing. Some disinformation is an insidious attack on democracy and some disinformation is not. Um, and it's sort of part of sort of politics as usual. Um, and uh, I was on a panel with Ben Smith, formerly of the New York Times, and uh, and before that BuzzFeed. And um, this very nice uh, lady, Adrienne LaFrance, LaFrance, uh, from... Uh, the Atlantic. She's the executive editor. And it was moderated by David Axelrod. And um, I thought it was fine. I got a lot of nice feedback about it. I also got a lot of really dumbass criticism on Twitter about it, which we can get to in a second as well. Um, but one point I thought you was know, sort of worth mentioning that um, uh, 
um, you know, the, this conference spent a lot, uh, from what I can tell, spends a lot of time talking about Russian disinformation. And I think Russian disinformation is a real thing. Um, I think it was definitely a real thing in 2016. Um, but, and I think that social media is, changes, is represents opportunities for a categorical difference between Russian and before that Soviet disinformation and generations past. But I also thought it was important to at least mention, and I did it very quickly because, you know, it's not what the top, the panel was explicitly about, but um, it's not a coincidence that Vladimir Putin's a KGB guy. He's not a military guy. I think we now can see that pretty clearly. Um, but that, you know, the disinformation campaigns that uh, we see coming out of out of Russia today are very similar to the disinformation campaigns that came out of the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, I, mean, I guess in the 50s, too, it was a little different. I mean, they really got to kind of polish the practice a bit by the 60s and 70s. And um, I'm not going to go too deep into this. Maybe I'll write about this tomorrow. But it's, you know, like you may have heard if you were around in the 80s that the CIA created AIDS. Um, I remember seeing that in pamphlets. I remember seeing that in weird sort of left-wing, you know, uh, posters and graffiti and all that kind of stuff. That was uh, a direct concoction of the KGB. Um, they played that kind of game all the time. Uh, they, you know, and, and, and I believe I.F. Stone took some of this stuff in a previous generation. You know, like I said, the 1950s, you know, the... That reminds me that Korea, during the Korean War, the Soviets uh, put a huge amount of disinformation out there that um, we had used biological weapons in Korea. We didn't. A lot of useful idiots used uh, repeated that um, uh, as part of their indictments of America and their sort of you know moral equivalence nonsense and all the rest. Um, I think the most interesting stuff was in the 1960s where the Soviets worked aggressively um, to, I'm sorry, I'm umming a lot. I'm just exhausted. Uh, the Soviets worked aggressively to uh, sow racial discord in the United States. Uh, they uh, planted anti-Martin Luther King articles in uh, African newspapers and then, you know, took those newspapers and brought them to the U.S., as if they were like legitimate news stories and disseminated them that way. Uh, they really wanted to get Stokely Carmichael to be the leader of the, what they would have said back then, the Negro community, the African-American or black community in the United States, because they wanted um, to heighten the contradictions, as Lenin might say. Uh, someone wrote, I can't remember, I've written about this before, but someone wrote about that one of the funny things about Martin Luther King is that he probably was the subject of more shady stuff from both the KGB and the FBI than any other figure in, in history. And maybe that's, that's true. Um, you know, the, what was it? Patrice Lumumba university. Yeah, that's a real thing. Um, uh, you know, they would give PhDs in Holocaust denial, um, which is kind of funny given how much the Soviets, were um, invested in their heroic conquest of, of the Nazis. Um, 
anyway, there was an enormous amount of that stuff. It had an enormous half-life uh, on the left in the United States. It was intended to sow discord and distrust in our institutions and democracies to heighten racial conflicts. Uh, they went to some lengths. They had all of these sort of really sketchy uh, plans um, or schemes to talk about, like, uh, blowing up a, you know, a a black institution in Harlem. I'm just doing this from memory at this point, but like a black institution in Harlem, and then hand out pamphlets saying it was the Jewish Defense League. I mean, it they, Russia had a big role in trying to foment that whole helter skelter thing in the United States. Um, and so you can see a continuous line between those kinds of strategies and the stuff that we've seen on social media. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's worth bringing up is that there was a time when if you were to say this stuff, if you were to point this stuff out or disclose this stuff about the KGB's role in American politics, it would get you labeled a crazy paranoid right winger, um, even though it was true. Um, there was an enormous amount of communist propaganda in the United States. Um, and it was disinformation foisted by the Soviet Union. Uh, today, you can see a sort of similar dynamic where it's the left that talks a lot about Russian disinformation, and it's the right that says, oh, they're just being paranoid. The truth is, is that there was also a lot of paranoia on the right. You know, the sort of General Jack Ripper, you know, bodily fluids kind of paranoia. Um, the McCarthyite paranoia. Um and the, the difficult thing is acknowledging that there was an enormous amount of exaggeration on the right, but it was an exaggeration of real facts, of, of, of a true thing. The Soviets did try to screw with the country in all sorts of ways. And for years, if you, you know, were, you know, the, the, you know we talk today about people who are anti-anti-Putin or anti-anti-Trump and all that kind of stuff. That starts with the anti-anti-communists which was a real thing about the left in the United States is that they weren't necessarily communists. They just hated people who hated communists. And you can just see a lot of echoes of that kind of thing today, but people don't know a lot of this history. And so they think that things are worse than they've ever been. Um, so I want to get that sort of at least on the record this morning. Um, another point that I tried to make was that, you know, because uh, you can just feel it in the air. You can feel it from the questions. You can feel it from the conversations you overheard in the lobby and from the conversation from Ann Applebaum. Um, there is this, I, I have no, let me put it this way. I have no problem acknowledging that there's an asymmetry between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party or between the right and the left in how all sorts of arguments, talking points, obsessions, whatever, play out. I have no problem if you were a liberal thinking that they're all worse on the Republican side or the conservative side or the right wing side or however you want to define it. I have no problem if you're a conservative who wants to say that it's all much worse um, on the right than it is on the left. Uh, doesn't mean I necessarily agree with you on your specifics or your particulars, but I think these are defensible propositions um, and in part because they're depending on the case, they're propositions that I actually endorse. That said, the assumption that like the Democratic Party is just the party of the normals or that the left isn't 
um, paranoid or excessive or extreme about anything, um, it's just a, it's, it's just confirmation bias. It's just, it's, it's, it's a nice story that people on the left tell themselves. It was funny. So we kind of, at the end of my panel, it descended into a conversation about media bias. And, and I cannot begin to tell you how, you know, we talked about it last week, how exhausted I am by about the topic about media bias, but I was, uh, but Jeffrey Goldberg, no relation asked from the audience, um, a question of me about like, how do you, um, how do you fix the problem with the media that conservatives have with it, the lack of trust with it and all the rest. And, you know, big part of my argument was, and I always has been, I've talked about this for years, is that you should have a better definition of diversity than just a whole bunch of people of different um, races, genders, and sexual orientations who all think alike. Um, have, you know, have some people in the room that don't want the stories you're working on to be true. Um, because that bias um, will lead them to useful and constructive skepticism. I mean, uh, the example I used at first was the, the, the Dan Rather Memogate story. I was just like, look, that, that, you know, if you just had somebody on the team who didn't believe that story or didn't want it to be true, so they asked the difficult questions um, difficult fact checking or skeptical questions, um, Dan Rather's career wouldn't have imploded. Um, CBS's reputation wouldn't have imploded. Uh, the New York Times wouldn't have run the disastrous headline about the memos saying they were, quote, fake but accurate. Um, all you need is somebody in the room to say, hold on here, you know, aren't we missing something? And the same goes for right-wing media, you know, I mean, at if, if there were a few people at Fox who didn't, a few more people at Fox who didn't want certain stories to be true, they'd make fewer mistakes. Although I got to say, on the news side, it's a little difficult to think of our, you know, think of um, mistakes that are anywhere near the magnitude of, say, the groupthink-induced problem of of the Memogate story, um, you know, or the CNN tailwind story from the '90s, or you know, the UVA. Uh, date rape story, um, that, you know, bedeviled Rolling Stone. Um, so anyway, I, I, I really don't want to dwell on all this kind of stuff, but the reason I bring it up, you know, in part, it's just cause it's what I did today and I don't have much else to talk about, um, is, uh, at some point I was talking about this in generic terms in the last question of the day and, and Jeffrey Goldberg asked me, um, could I give some specifics? And I guess this was long after I'd done the CBS thing. And I said, you know, uh, the way some in the media covered the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, which was just simply outrageous. It undermined any credibility that the mainstream media had with conservatives. It was seen as, um, you know, disinformation, essentially, and a smear campaign. And it galvanized the pro-Trump and anti-Trump right like no other issue in Trump's four years, I think. Uh, maybe the killing of Suleimani, um, but that's about it. And anyway, that was sort of my answer for specifics. And he was like, can you name names? And I was like, well, I think the way the New Yorker did it was terrible and was shameful. And um, I didn't name um, 
all the specific people, you know, there was Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow who did terrible things on that story. Um, and, you know, the media, the mainstream media that went whole hog with confirmation bias about that story, um, they did it because they just wanted it to be true. And even though they could not verify these allegations against Kavanaugh, they went with it anyway. And I think that just, you don't, the people who are in those bubbles don't appreciate the damage that they're doing, not just to themselves and the, their institutions, but to the country, because it gives people on the other side of the aisle all the permission in the world that they want psychologically to just dismiss um, legitimate news coverage, um, factual news coverage. Um, you know, I can't give a number, but I, <laughs> lots of people, when I talk to them about how the, you know, when I would email with them about like, or, or text with them or whatever about the, you know, the stolen election BS. Um, and I would say, well, you know, look, this was covered here. This was covered there. And I said, why should I believe that? I mean, look at the, what they did with the, you know, Brett Kavanaugh or look what they did with the Hunter Biden thing, which is this new thing right now. Um, and I should be clear so people understand, um, there's a difference between disinformation and misinformation. Disinformation is to knowingly lie, right? Disinformation is to say things that you substantially know are untrue because you think they will have a desired effect. Um, it's possible that some definitions of disinformation just include an utter disregard for whether or not something is true, but Disinformation is about not, at minimum, not caring about whether something is true because you are looking for a desired effect and you're reverse engineering from the desired effect, whatever it is you, you vomit out into the culture. And um, misinformation is something that you can do sincerely, right? Misinformation is wrong information. And so there are, you know, and I didn't get into this on the panel too deeply, but like, you know, there's this sort of weirdness where you can be supplied with disinformation and then you can use it sincerely and then it becomes, in a sense, misinformation. And as I, you know, discussed last week, I think that's probably um, the best way to think about Ginny Thomas is she was bumped up with a lot of disinformation and she believed it, and then she starts spreading it, and it becomes misinformation because she was not, I don't believe, spreading it knowingly, deceitfully. She was spreading it um, because she was duped, you know, and she was sincere but wrong. So I guess speaking of sincere but wrong, I might as well address this. I'm sorry if I sound dyspeptic about this. It's just that so many of the usual suspects on Twitter um, have made, you know, I've been jerks um, about something I said this morning on the panel, and I'm trying to ignore Twitter. So maybe there's a riot of nuance that I have missed. Um, but uh, so yesterday, uh, again, Wednesday, um, some freshman at the University of Chicago asked Ann Applebaum about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And I thought Ann Applebaum gave a bad answer, um, a legitimately just bad answer. Um, she had been doing all this stuff, all this granularity about disinformation and misinformation and, and about, you know, how uh, uh, totalitarian regimes exploit, you know, the weaknesses of democracy and yada, yada, yada. And, um, um, and then she gets to the 
and then someone asked her, you know, towards the end of the you know, Q&A period about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And she basically says, in effect, you can go find it. I'm sure it's all over the place. Maybe we can find a link to it. She says, in effect, um, it doesn't really matter whether it's disinformation or misinformation or anything because I just don't care about the story. Um, and I don't find it interesting and it doesn't affect um, Joe Biden or how Joe Biden, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think that was a bad answer. And I, I was trying to give that answer today on the panel. But I also said I thought the premise of the question was bad. And I used the word preposterous. I'm happy to defend the word preposterous, but in the in a riot of um, equanimity and and bridge building, let me just sort of explain where I was coming from. Um, the questioner, um, this this kid from New Chicago, um, quoted some poll. I gather it comes from the Media Research Center that says 16% of people who are asked said that they would have changed their vote if they had known about the Hunter Biden stuff. Now I just I haven't seen that poll. I don't believe that poll. Um, I don't believe the poll. I don't, I don't believe that very many people at the time um, of the Hunter Biden thing unfolding actually believe that this was going to change everything except for people like Rudy Giuliani and a lot of people deep in the bunker. But the idea that somehow Joe Biden, who won by something like 7 million votes, um, would have seen the election taken from him by this, I don't know, was it an October surprise? I guess it was. Um, I just find wildly unpersuasive to the point of preposterousness. Now, that does not mean that I think Anne Abelman was right that the thing doesn't matter. I think I've talked about this a good deal before. I think, um, and I know that Jim Treacher thinks, and there's some other people on Twitter who think that this is the most important thing I ever tweeted, but uh, Jim Treacher, you know, is a pretty engaged partisan guy, but I always at least used to have a nice relationship with him. Um, he had tweeted something about the Hunter Biden thing back in the day and back when this was a brewing thing. And, um, um, and I responded, wait, you actually believe the story about how they got the laptop, like on face value or something like that. And, and like this apparently is my, one of my greatest sins as a, as a human being, according to um, some tests out there. And I still don't believe the story as the way it unfolded back then. Um, uh, like there's just something super sketchy about how before the FBI could get this laptop, Rudy Giuliani gets his hands on it, right? There's just something weird about that. I am not saying that it was a Russia plot. I don't think I ever said that it was a Russia plot. Um, but I think that the way the media handled the release of the, the, the Hunter Biden stuff is a very mixed bag. You know, people forget Fox News refused to, you know, Rudy Giuliani brought the, the, the Hunter Biden thing, Hunter Biden laptop thing to Fox first, and Fox took a pass. Um, the New York Post didn't, um, but there were a bunch of people at the Post who didn't want anything. You know, it was, a, it was a very controversial decision within the Post. And my view at the time was, and it's still at the time, is that running with this thing without being able to verify it is very questionable, right? I mean, like, oppo dumps are a big thing. I think 
running the the steel dossier thing the way BuzzFeed did was a very questionable thing as well. Um, and uh, but these are all like to the extent people are willing to have reasonable arguments about all this kind of stuff. Uh, there are reasonable sides on all of this. Um, um, I'm talking about among the people who are giving me a hard time, you know, for the most part. Uh, but I think it was, I, I think, I think the fact that, that, that Hunter Biden is pretty obviously a corrupt, sketchy dude who was doing corrupt, sketchy things is, is pretty well established and it's newsworthy because it's the president's son and the president as a candidate, as, as far as I can tell, just lied about what his son was up to and what he knew about it. And if we're going to all of a sudden say that, you know, influence peddling members of your own family aren't fair game as news and aren't relevant, relevant, particularly when they're making promises about what they can get the big guy or whatever it was called um, to deliver is just sort of ridiculous. And I, that's why I thought Ann Applebaum's answer was ridiculous. Um, but I also think that there's an enormous amount of revisionism going on if you think that but for uh, the spiking, the, the Twitter and Facebook refusing to link to the New York Post article that that Donald Trump would be president today, I just think that's preposterous. I mean, it's, it's certainly preposterous to the extent that we can't know, right? Which is another point that I made. It's just you can't prove a negative. You can't run the clock backwards. But it, the, the electorate was wildly polarized about Donald Trump. And the idea that there were a bunch of waivers, whatever that that poll says that there are a bunch of persuadable voters left by the end of that campaign um, and who were, and let me, be, let me be very clear about this, right? The argument is, is that there were enough people to swing the election. And I understand on the battleground states, the states, the election was much closer than the top margin in the popular vote. But we're to believe that enough people would be so offended by allegations, still unproven, right to this day, unproven to you know to a large degree, that I don't mean unproven about Hunter Biden. I mean unproven about uh, Joe Biden's complicity in all of this, right? But we're supposed to believe that there was a large segment of persuadable voters, right, persuadable voters, who would be so offended at the idea of a candidate chop child, right? A candidate's son monetizing his father's political position for narrow, selfish greed. And we're supposed to believe that like somehow allegations about Hunter Biden would cause all of these voters to be fine with Don Jr. and Jared and Ivanka. Um, I mean, come on. As a matter of the sort of like public corruption stuff, it still seems pretty obvious to me that the Trump kids who were making millions of dollars while working for the federal government on the White House staff is a far greater scandal than, you know, than Hunter Biden corruptly going off and freelancing stuff. But look, we may discover something more. And I'm I'm not only fine with the press investigating this stuff, I think it has to for its own credibility. It has to. This is just sort of journalism 101. This is a legitimate news story. And um, but there's this enormous amount of retconning, right? We've gone from being told that the election was stolen because of 
um, Ugo Javas and North Korea and and all of this stuff to the sort of uh, you know the, the sort of classic sort of Molly Hemingway way of trying to give people permission to hold on to the wrong ideas by giving them a more plausible narrative about how it was because of Facebook's meddling or um, uh, what do you call it uh, the the changing of the rules about elections because of COVID, which I think is a legitimate gripe, by the way. And I've said this from the beginning. I think like in Pennsylvania, having a judge make these changes um, rather than doing it through the legislature is a legitimate thing for the Supreme Court to scrutinize. It's a legitimate thing to complain about. But you know who didn't complain about it? You know who didn't say bupkis until after the election? The Pennsylvania GOP. You can't say that the rules were rigged unfairly against you and only after you lose. As a matter of law, you have to file these complaints beforehand. And my understanding from well-placed sources is that there were smart, very pro-Trump people, part of the, the home team in the Trump White House, saying these things to the president. And President Trump was like, no, well, I'm going to win by landslide. My base is going to come out and yada, yada, yada. And then the bitching and moaning comes when he doesn't actually win. And so anyway, I, this idea that we've come to in 2021, 2022, that it was the only reason Trump lost was because of the Hunter Biden laptop story being spiked, which got vastly more attention because of Twitter and Facebook's now, at least in retrospect, clearly stupid decisions to try to censor it. Right. Um, uh, the idea that somehow that was the thing that kept Trump from being reelected, I think, is just this bizarre kind of almost quasi paranoid stabbed in the back narrative that a bunch of people are falling back on because they need to have some story now to, to, to justify all of this. Um, and I just don't buy it. And that's what I thought was preposterous. I stand by it in, in, in the way I've just explained. Um, but I just find, you know, to me, it's very similar to the, all the people who are obsessed with David French. I love David French. He's one of my closest friends these days. I'm very happy to have him at the dispatch. But every few days, you know, I, I see another dumbass piece on, you know, promoted on Twitter from the usual places telling us that, you know, like acting as if David French is all that is stopping the forces of righteousness from seizing the means of production and control of the commanding heights of our politics and our culture. Um, you know, if, if your entire theory about how you're going to gain power and persuade everybody that you are right in your, in your righteous desires and ambitions is to delegitimize or character assassinate David French, then you're the dumbass, right? I mean, then your, your whole theory of politics is ridiculous. Um, and I find that, you know, it's the same thing with this Hunter Biden stuff. It's like, you know, got to drill down, you know, below groundwater on this one story as if um, it is the Rosetta Stone to all of your grievances. And it's just not. Um, anyway, um, rant over. All right. So I haven't talked about it. I, to be honest, I, I didn't follow it for the longest time. I still haven't followed it with the granularity that I should. Um but let's talk for a second about the don't say gay bill thing. Here's how I understand it. I am open to correction. But people who I trust 
um, and including some partisans who are kind of speaking against interest, um, I, I think have led, have led me to have a certain degree of confidence in, in, in how I see it. The don't say gay label is focus group BS that had some claim on accuracy based upon some very early piece version of the Florida legislation. Um, um, but anything that could be fairly characterized as don't say gay about the salient part of that law is now disconnected from reality. There's ambiguity, ambiguity about like how to teach stuff in a quote unquote age appropriate manner for kids above third grade. And so there are people who are projecting into that, this idea that it's, a, that means you can't say gay. And look, I think there's a reasonable fear that in some jurisdictions and some school districts that may actually turn out to be the case. Cause I think the ambiguity here is not great, but the core idea that we shouldn't be teaching or that Florida schools shouldn't be teaching about sexual orientation and sexual practices and transgenderism for kids from kindergarten to third grade seems to me, you can disagree with it, um, but it seems to me utterly reasonable for parents to want that, right? That, that you know, that if, if their kids are going to be taught, you know, what used to be called sex ed, it can wait at least until fourth grade. Um, and the simple fact is, is this, at least as I understand it, the language that says that is overwhelmingly popular in Florida and probably around the country. And the don't gay, don't say gay thing was a poll tested way or a focus group tested way to redefine what the debate was about in order to, um, uh, galvanize public, uh, opposition to a fundamentally popular piece of legislation and it backfired. And this is one of the reasons why I think the groomer pedophile talk is, um, you know, first of all, I think it's immoral, right? I just think it's, it's, it's flatly immoral. Um, calling someone and, and I, I, I get the fight fire with fire kind of thing. A bunch of otherwise reasonable people, have been saying, well, this is what you get when you call, you know, anyone who disagrees with you a racist. It's that someone's going to come back and call you a pedophile. Um, as a matter of sociological analysis, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but as a matter of morality, I think it's grotesque. Um, I think it's grotesque to unfairly call people racist. And I think it's grotesque to call people, to unfairly call people pedophiles. Um, the only people you should call pedophiles are pedophiles. Um, and the only people you should call racists are racists. And the more you have to leap into flights of, of, of metaphorical, figurative, poetic license to justify your claims that somebody is a racist or a pedophile, the more you're just confessing on yourself that you want to be able to say these things and you don't actually have evidence to say it. But beyond the moral part of it, um, I think it's just tactically dumb because this is a winning issue for conservatives and Republicans. The sort of parental empowerment, parental rights, 
uh, pulling back on the excesses of sort of woke sexual identity politics and transgender stuff in schools is a mainstream issue for normal parents and um, particularly in suburbs. And so that's why it requires the greatest care and how you talk about it. So you don't turn off the persuadable voters um, that make it a majority issue. You should talk about it with utter reasonableness and concern for the plight and the well-being of children and not get baited into saying anybody who disagrees with you or raises problems or whatever must want to be grooming kids so that they can be sexually abused by them or some other adult. And this is what I mean about having to get sort of really creative and poetic and figurative is you see these these arguments getting made where it's very much like, you know, the whole don't take Trump seriously, take him, you know, don't take Trump literally, take him seriously. It's like, well, you know, like literally are they pedophiles? No, but they are creating a culture that would be more conducive to pedophiles, yada, yada, yada. Um, okay. I mean, I'm not saying I agree necessarily with that argument, but if that's your actual argument, make that argument. Don't say that that argument justifies calling people who are not pedophiles, pedophiles. I mean, if, if, if there is a, any word left in our culture that is more of a bloody shirt, um, you know, taboo, uh, traducing word than pedophile, I don't know what it is. And it can get people hurt. I mean, I've brought my kid to that, that, that Comet pizza place in, in DC. I've been there, you know, it's like a normal family pizza joint. And a dude walked in there because of the Pizzagate thing. And remember, there are a lot of really terrible people who promoted Pizzagate who are now like TV personalities at like, you know, Newsmax and OAN, or I can never remember which one's which, but you get the point. There are a lot of people who got a lot of notoriety and haven't had to play, pay a political price for their involvement in that garbage. Um, but there was a guy who honestly believed he honestly believed the disinformation and went and drove, I can't remember where from, like North Carolina or something, with a gun to Comet Pizza because he wanted to save the, the, the children that were being held hostage in the sex, sex dungeons below or whatever that story was. Um, this is like not normal political rhetoric to be throwing around. And it's just such malpractice given the fact that this is a winning issue for Republicans um, and for conservatives. And I just, I find the whole thing grotesque beyond belief. And, you know, I, I agree with Eric Erickson that there is a, a bit of a political camp. I shouldn't say there is. It seems to me there's a bit of a sort of coordinated political effort to talk about all this stuff as if it's an appeal to QAnon. Um, and um, I'm not ruling that out entirely, but I tend to think, that's not probably true. Um, but it's also not just about the Disney thing and it's, a, or the don't say gay thing. It's also about, um, the Kataji Brown Jackson confirmation. I mean, uh, the, the idea that's been insinuated by, you know, some people at the Federalist and, and, and forthrightly declared by Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, is that, you know, 
the only reason you would vote to confirm, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson is if you are somehow either pro-pedophile or a pedophile yourself or pro-grooming kids to become victims of pedophiles. I mean, this is just not sane to talk like this. And to the extent it is sane, it's profoundly cynical and grotesque to me. At least that's how I see it from afar. On the Disney stuff, um, look, I haven't watched all of the videos from within Disney, but it is nuts for Disney to let itself be branded as this out of the mainstream boutique um, sexual minority pandering enterprise. It'd be bad for Disney. It's bad for the country. It's probably bad for those sexual minorities. Um, you know, there's a company like Disney should be small C conservative. It should realize that it is one of the most valuable storehouses of, of moral and, and artistic capital in Western, literally in Western civilization. And if you start squandering it, um, uh, in order to appease a bunch of people that you don't need to appease, because first of all, they're taking a friggin' paycheck from you. A lot of them. Um, um, or to appease, you know, I just was talking to Megan McArdle about this, to appease a tiny sliver of a sliver of people who are very, you know, active on Twitter and social media, that you're gonna you're gonna trade away a century's worth of of moral and reputational capital. Um, is just insane. And I suspect, I don't know, because again, I haven't followed it super closely, that what this really was, was at least in part, a bunch of internal pandering that was never supposed to be forward-facing. I, ga I gather this thing was leaked to Chris Rufo. Um, and I don't know that the people who were talking on these videos are lying about their commitments to all of these things, about, you know, um, you know, sexual mind, you know, making like half the characters, um, you know, trans or gay or whatever. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know, you know, how serious that that all is. I don't know if they were lying about it or not, but I do think that this what this was, was an attempt to get internal Disney employees to to, to pipe down. And and I don't know that it was ever going to actually be translated as policy. I mean, I would love to see some of that stuff defended in front of a shareholder meeting. It would be interesting. I was going to say, just because, you know, I, I want to be clear about this. I, you know, I, I have more nuanced views on transgender stuff than a lot of my friends on the right. Um, I am very sympathetic to the argument that, that, that biological males should not be in, in women's sports. Um, I think that, you know, it is a bizarre betrayal of, of legitimately feminist principles that, you know, like, again, my wife wrote, you know, the original critical book about Title IX. I follow this stuff, not quite from afar, but, you know, from uh, an adjacent distance for a long time. And I went to an all-women's college for fudge's sake. Um, it took the culture a long time to convince people, particularly dads, that women's sports were something to be hugely encouraged and valued. That was that whole sort of Title IX ethos. That's why you have the Title IX clothing catalog and all of that. Um, you know, George W. Bush was against any significant reforms to Title IX, much to my wife's chagrin at the time, because, um, you know, we were seeing a lot of men's sports programs, you know, 
time-honored, venerable men's sports programs being shuttered uh, in order to play these number games that the Clinton administration had put forward about um, how you could be in sort of a a safe harbor and immune from from lawsuits. Um, And Bush didn't want to do it because he had two daughters and he was really into them being um, involved in sports, which I understand. Um, and so it's, yeah, I think it's just sort of historically and sociologically, um, bizarre that at just the moment, you know, we, we like, it was five minutes ago, we were talking about equal work for equal pay with the WNBA. Um, uh, and you know, all the stuff with Augusta and all that. And now all of a sudden the sort of woke enlightened position on the left is that men who, who say they are women, um, should be allowed to compete against biological women. And yeah, I get it. I get it. I'm not saying that, you know, you know, that, that society should be needlessly cruel towards transgendered. And I think you should refer to people the way they want to be referred to and all these kinds of things. Um, but you know, there is a price that comes with social toleration. You know, it is not a surprise that, the successful effort to get, you know, mainstream acceptance of, of, of gays in American culture had to do with the fact, and it was an effort that was, that was pioneered by Andrew Sullivan and by Jonathan Rauch and a few others, um, to say that gays wanted access to traditional American institutions as gays, right? You know, they wanted to be recognized in the army. They wanted to have access to the institution of marriage. Um, they wanted, you know, entree into mainstream institutions. And I get that. Um, on the flip side, there are like some rules that come, you know, Jews as a minority culture for in every society they've ever lived in, except one, you know, they understand that tolerance is a two way street. There's a certain amount of deference that you pay to the majority culture, and there's a certain amount of deference that the majority culture pays towards minorities. And the idea that somehow the worst thing in the world would be to come up with a standard that says biological males um, should not be allowed to compete in a handful of instances, right? Because it's not a huge mass thing. It's almost all symbolic performative stuff just does not strike me as the greatest of all sacrifices. Um, and, and so I'm very sympathetic on the, on the sports stuff. At the same time, I do think that the conflation of all of these different sexual norms and or sexual labels um, as if they are all, you know, apples to apples to apples, I just find... Um, unpersuasive and problematic. I think there's a lot of faddishness to a lot of the transgender stuff. Um, doesn't mean it's not very real for some individuals. Um, but you just see the numbers of people saying that they're somewhere on the spectrum and all of these various things. If this was rooted in, um, some more concrete biological reality, we would see a lot more evidence of this in the historical record, right? There's evidence of homosexuality going back to the very beginning. Um, There is, um, I'm not saying there's none, but there's a lot less about these various, you know, a few years ago, it was 56 different genders on Facebook. Um, 
like I can maybe count to eight, <laughs> um, which makes me like squishy middle guy. Um, but I, I, I think that it's just a bad cul-de-sac that a lot of people on the sort of sexual identity politics left are getting themselves into by trying to conflate all of these things together. And one of the things that doesn't, I think one of the reasons you get it is that they've been so successful with the mainstreaming of, you know, of, of gays, you know, gays and lesbians. You know, it was, I thought it was a very interesting historical moment. Um, Anderson Cooper interviewed uh, 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 Pete Buttigieg on 60 Minutes like a month ago. And Anderson Cooper said, who's gay, said that um, uh, Buttigieg was the first openly gay male cabinet secretary or something like that. And a bunch of people on the right said, you know, au contraire, Rick Grinnell, who was the ambassador to the UN, was the first openly gay cabinet member. And they got a point. But it's just very interesting that you would see these complaints coming from the sort of um, what are supposed to be the troglodytic right. I'm not saying they're troglodytic, but, you know, this sort of right, um, the bigoted right, as 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 told by the left. And yet the thing they're pissed off about in the media bias is that they weren't giving props to a, a Trump appointee for being gay. Um, if you are a serious person about gay rights and about tolerance and all that kind of stuff, you should take those kinds of complaints as a sign of profound success um, rather than something to ignore or make fun of. Um, so anyway, uh, distinctions matter, I guess, is where I'm coming from. Um, where else? Well, I was going to do this thing because I talked about how um, witch hunts were actually a product of the Protestant Revolution. Um, uh, I saw Protestant Reformation. Sorry, words are starting to spill out like from a leaky bucket. Um, and because I, uh, I talked about this with Megan McArdle, I think it's a really fascinating thing about how in, in many respects it was the Catholic Church that squashed witch trials or witch hunts. Um, and one of the reasons why um, historians incorrectly associated them with the Inquisition is because it was a sort of an understandable mistranslation or misreading where when they did have witch trials and, you know, they found out that the witch um, uh, didn't float or whatever it was from Monty Python um, and they sentenced them to die um, badly, uh, the, the paperwork would say uh, by inquisition which really meant in this context by inquiry, but it actually had no relationship to the office of the Inquisition of the Catholic Church. And um, um, and it was the Catholic Church in many, Catholic Church, you know, made its mistakes during that era as well. I'm not, don't get me wrong, but if you go back and you read a lot of the sort of like um, Dan Brown or Gloria Steinem kind of stuff about the Catholic Church, um, and witch hunts, it's just all wrong. And I wrote about it in my underrated book, Tyranny and Clichés, and I was going to read it, but I'm just too too fried to, to read, you know, um, a thousand words or whatever I was going to excerpt. So maybe we'll save that for another time. Um, and 
I have no idea about the G file tomorrow. I got to be on a plane, which always screws with um, my writing. And we got to do a the this the group dispatch podcast in the morning. Um, I'd ask you guys for ideas for G files, but by the time you hear this, it'll already be written. Um, I got to say, I I really love Chicago when the weather's nice in the summer, but the more I come here when it's not, you know, July or August, the more, or I should say June or July, the more I wonder how people, you know, live here. I mean, I'm just becoming less tolerant of the cold. Man, it's just, it's colder than normal cold here. Um, and, you know, I'm sure I've talked about this before. My wife, you know, always used to say that even though she grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, where it got, according to the thermostat, much colder than Chicago does, um, coldest she ever was was in Chicago because there's this humidity, there's this wet wind. You know, it's the mixture of that wind chill and the moisture in the wind that just really gets you down to the bone um, compared to other places. And the idea of going to the University of Chicago, um, you know, which I'm just looking at right now, which is why it came into my head. Um, man, the idea of taking like an 8 a.m., you know, biology class across campus in an overheated building. I just, you know, how you would just stay awake for more than three minutes um, is beyond me. But, you know, Pod did it. A bunch of people did it. Um, so I guess, and, you know, uh, Yuval Levin did it. Um, so it must be doable. But um, uh, it's, I, I have no desire to try. So anyway, I'm truly rambling now. Um, thanks again for listening, and um, I'll see you next time. Yeah. A, B, C, D, E, F, G.